Hello there, and welcome to In the PI Seat, the podcast where we discuss the career choices of different researchers, and in particular, their transition from postdoc to PI. I am your host, Camila Valenzuela, and today we have Charlotte Odendahl, a Sir Henry Dale Fellow at King's College London. Hi, Charlotte. Welcome to the show. Uh, hello. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to have you here. So uh, Charlotte is a Sir Henry Dale Fellow at King's College London, and she actually works on two of my favorite uh, bacterial pathogens. <laughs> so that's uh, that's a coincidence slash not a coincidence. <laughs> Maybe this is why it brought us together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. But it's so good to have you here. This show is based on like the idea of how people transition from uh, postdoc to PI and then how you start a group mm -hmm. and uh, how how you make it happen basically uh, really this exact training that we get while doing like the PhD the postdoc and blah blah but it's uh, it, it's something that I'm really fascinated okay. about I would like to start by um, you giving us like a sh uh, a run through your career so far so where did you study what did you study uh, in university and so on and so sure. Um, so, um, I was born in Germany, <laughs> and I'm French. Let's start with the beginning. No, but so I'm French, and I moved to London um, for school, actually, uh, when I was 14. And then I stayed in London for my undergraduate studies, uh, and I went to Imperial College, where I studied biochemistry, which was a bit of a challenge, because I didn't speak English very well at the time. Um, uh, but I studied biochemistry there, and then I stayed at Imperial. I did a master's in biochemical research where I rotated in uh, three different labs. And maybe we'll discuss the topics of these rotations because they were heavily influenced by my um, interest in cellular microbiology already. And then I did a PhD on salmonella pathogenesis with David Holden. Um, and I moved to uh, Boston afterwards at Harvard to do a postdoc in innate immunity with John Kagan. So I wanted to I was absolutely fascinated by uh, host pathogen interactions. And up until my postdoc, I had mostly worked on the bacteria. And so I really wanted to uh, become more uh, proficient in the host. And so I did a postdoc in, in immunity and I learned a bit of immunology uh, in Boston as well. And so with that dual training, that allowed me to then open a lab on host bacteria interactions at King's College London uh, with a fellowship. So I can explain maybe later down the line uh, what these are. And so I've been there for a few years now, and uh, I'm very happy. Wonderful. I'm, I'm already interested by your rotations. Mm -hmm. what, what did you do during the rotations in the master's? So basically what I wanted to, to come to is that um, my undergraduate uh, degree was for three years. And so I, when I started uh, my undergrad, I was fascinated by biology. I, like, I already knew this was going to be a career for me. But then I was quite disappointed because... Across my three years of studies, I couldn't find any topic that I particularly fell in love with. I was convinced I wanted to do neuroscience. Uh, that didn't work out for me or genetics. But then in the final course of my final year, I took a course on host pathogen interactions taught by Gordon Dugan. And so this is when I, I absolutely found um, uh, basically my calling and what I was uh, fascinated about. And... Um, uh, I did a rotation in, in a lab working on phagocytosis. 
Um, and we can discuss this later afterwards as well. Um, and then uh, basically I found a master's program at Imperial, which would give you three different rotations in different labs. And so this is when uh, I think my personality uh, went through, came through already is because I didn't really like any of the rotations proposed and I went to seek out uh, labs that worked in host bacteria interactions and I went to ask them if they would join the program so I could do a rotation in their lab. So this is how I ended up doing three rotations on three uh, labs that worked on type 3 secretion because I thought this uh, was absolutely fascinating. I still do. So I did a rotation uh, with uh, in, actually in a plant uh, pathogen with the type 3 secretion system, which was super fascinating. I did a rotation with uh, David Holden, whose lab I ended up joining as, as a PhD student. And then I did a rotation with Gaddy Frankel as well, working on EPEC. But most of these labs actually weren't part of the program and I sort of uh, pushed it to happen. Wow, that's amazing. It, it really shows uh, that you're like really... Well, th there's positives and negatives. <laughs> like, like, yeah, of course. No, 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 with, with everything. But it really shows that you're like, if, if you want something, you go. Oh, yes, it. I think this is a... And, and, and you're not a Yeah, yeah, this, is a, good, this you know? is a good description. And uh, yes, that also means that sometimes you're not, you, you ruffle the feathers, but I guess, I guess that's uh, the, the price to pay. Yeah, I, I also think that there is nothing more dangerous in science or in life in general than saying uh, this has always been done like mm -hmm. this. So we're going to keep it like this, you know. So anyway, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm behind you in that. And so how did you decide to choose in one of the three labs to then do a PhD? Why, why did you chose David Hall? So there wasn't any, so part of the, a lot of the PhD programs now have uh, a rotation system with three rotations for a year and then you join one of the labs. So this wasn't the case. Uh, so there wasn't any lab I needed to choose between the three, but just the rotation with David Holden went really well and he gave okay. me a position as a PhD student. And I really loved uh, my project there. I was combining uh, microbiology as well as I was working on a project which I continued for my PhD, which uh, studied uh, actin um, uh, manipulation by Salmonella. And uh, this was exactly what I wanted to do. So um, I decided to go there. And then what made you move across the Atlantic? Um, Besides, like, uh, like you could have done something like in, in the host pathogen, like in the, in, in the host side, there are labs everywhere. So why did you choose that particular one? Um, I don't know if I, I actually chose the lab for the reasons I'm going to say, but in retrospect, these were really good reasons. Um, so first thing, like I said before, I wanted to learn about the host. So this was something that I really wanted to do. And this was a very strong uh, innate immunity uh, lab, or at least a very strong uh, PI in innate immunity. So I wanted to learn that. Second of all, the lab was based at Harvard, mm -hmm. and that is always something that is appealing for everyone. And uh, having worked there uh, for six years, this is a choice I, I do not regret because it was a super stimulating environment. Um, you have mm -hmm. uh, in, in the sort of area around the Harvard Medical School, you have like hundreds of labs. Uh, you have tons of expertise in many different areas of research. And um, it was a very stimulating and uh, environment where I learned a lot. And then the third um, reason why this was a good choice, even though I wasn't completely sure at the time, is that I joined a lab that was less than two years old. And so basically I was joining the lab of a superstar young PI, John Kagan, who hadn't published yet as a PI. And as I was coming, some people were already leaving and basically I, we were starting over with two PhD students. And um, at first, I wasn't completely sure that this wasn't a dangerous choice. And um, I'm really happy I made that choice. I, I, this is like probably the best decision I've made in my career. Because again, uh, working with a young, young PI was super hungry, uh, incredibly smart. It was 
again, a very stimulating environment. Um, we, we had tons of ideas every second. We were trying to do different things and new things all the time. And I completely recommend uh, PhD students to consider doing a postdoc into a very young uh, and starting lab. And actually, I think it's also a good idea to do a PhD in a very young lab. Uh, so I combined a PhD in a sort of more established lab where I learned a lot uh, with a postdoc in a very young lab where I learned a lot of different things. So it's, it was really great to combine these two. Okay. Oh, that, that's fascinating. Do you think that also may, may, maybe the fact that you, at that stage in your life, in your career, you were able to kind of observe how a young PI starts their own lab helped you in some way? Because it's very different from when you're going, when you're going from a very established lab to starting your own lab, it, it might feel a bit like, Oh, but then actually, how do I do this? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes, I do feel that I, I do feel that it helped me because, um, yes, for, at two different levels. One, I saw how a young lab was operating, even though it's in a different country. So the grant system is different and, uh, the, you know, the different deadlines that you need to go through as you're moving forward in your career are different. The, the grants you're eligible for as a young PR are going to be different. So that didn't match, but at least seeing a uh how a young pi was was starting the lab was absolutely helpful that also meant that as i was starting my lab my pi was only six to eight years removed from starting his own lab so he was incredibly helpful he could still remember <laughs> mm. all of the different steps so he was incredibly helpful with me uh helping me secure my position or my first grant and uh, especially uh, getting our first paper published um he he, he like really helped me because basically when you're a corresponding author for the first time in your life, you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> so uh, he was incredibly helpful with that. Um, <laughs> and I guess if somebody is a bit younger and has done this more recently, they're, they, they kind of remember <laughs> what it's like a bit more. Okay, so one thing that I would like to hear uh, about you is like, what was your biggest influence to first start your scientific career and then to actually stay there? Yes, thank you very much for asking this question. <laughs> So I, um, as I mentioned, I did my, my PhD with David Holden and my postdoc with John Kagan, and I, I want to you know highlight them because they have taught me everything I, I know about being a scientist. But today I wanted to highlight several women that have been important influences in my research career. And uh, the first one is uh, Emmanuel Caron, who was my first um, project supervisor. So I did my uh, as part of my undergraduate degree, the last um, six weeks of your final year are a lab project. And so I did my project in the lab of Emmanuel Caron, working on phagocytosis and inflammation. And this is when uh, this was like the aha moment where I knew uh, that this is what I was meant to do. And Emmanuel was a like, super important influence even before she was my teacher before that. She was also a good friend. Um, I'm saying was because sadly she passed when I was uh, finishing my PhD in 2009, where um, we were in the same department. So she was very important in, in, in starting a science career, and she was a big influence, a direct influence um, on, on my research career. Um, I also had a very important indirect influence uh, on, you know, thinking that being a scientist uh, for a woman is possible. And uh, this is somebody you know, this is Pascal Cossard. And um, so, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I didn't really like any of my undergraduate teaching until the final year when we learned about post pathogen interactions. And so I learned about all of these fantastic scientists who were all men. And then there was this um, name Pascal with an E at the end. So I assumed this was a woman, Pascal Cossard, who was not only, you know, like um, playing the game quite uh, strongly with all these guys, but she was actually queen 
of all of this big club of cellular microbiology and one of the leading members and leading founders of the field of cellular microbiology. So I was super inspired reading her work and even like finding some lectures online. And um, first I found that her work was fascinating, but also I think it was a big eye-opening thing for me to see that a woman and a mother um, could have a super successful scientific career. So indirectly, Pascal had a bit um, in, like indirect influence at first, and then uh, and then later down the line, um, she became that positive like direct influence as well. Always, always being encouraging to pursue uh, projects and um, and and research, etc. And then um, later down the line, my biggest influence to stay in academia is uh, Sophie Len. So uh, Sophie was a postdoc in David's lab when I was a PhD student, and then she stayed to start her lab at Imperial. She's now at Harvard. And so we remained uh, good friends throughout the years. And um, I don't know if it's the case for a lot of people, uh, a lot of women, but for me, I had a lot of sort of negative uh, messages from a lot of people telling me that, you know, um, if I started a family, I couldn't have a, a research career. If I got married, uh, this was done for me in science. I hadn't done enough or whatever. And Sophie was that opposite positive influence. She's also a mother. She's got four children. She's a, she always um, directly pushed me to whenever I felt that I wasn't good enough or whatever, always directly pushed me to, um, to apply for fellowships, to apply for funding, to send you know, papers to big journals, um, always like being a basically a life coach, <laughs> um, both by telling me directly that that you know, pushing me directly to do things, also you know, showing by example that uh, being a successful uh, scientist and a mother is absolutely possible. So I would, it was important for me to mention this. I think we all need uh, a Sophie in our lives <laughs> to really push. Yes, us. as somebody um, who tells you like absolutely do it. Just don't don't listen to these people. Just do it. Just yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, you want to do it? Do, do it. it. <laughs> like the the worst thing that can happen is that they tell you no, but at least you did it. Yes, exactly. So no no nonsense. Yeah. Just oh, just that's do wonderful. It. Okay, so now I would like to go back a little uh, to the um, uh, to what you say that you're uh, you have a fellowship mm -hmm. position. What exactly does that yeah. mean? Uh, how, how how does it work? So it's a very English uh, system. So basically, when you start your lab in the UK in academia, uh, there's two different paths, and one is through the lectureship uh, academic track. So you get a job as a lecturer, mm -hmm. uh, which means that some of your time will be dedicated to teaching. Usually it's protected at the beginning, but eventually you end up spending 20% of your time on teaching and 80% on research. You have a contract uh, with the university, so the university pays you. And then you secure your uh, sort of lab funding through external grants. So, for example, from the Medical Research Council or for the Wellcome Trust or other, um, other avenues but you're paid by the university. And so there's a parallel track where you are joining a university as a fellow, but the university doesn't pay you. You secure your own salary through another grant. So these are called fellowships. And so they are available uh, for uh, early career fellows. So as you set up your group, um, uh, you, you are eligible for, uh, for early career fellowships, or they are called sometimes career development awards. And so these uh, are fairly long, so they're longer than grants. So that's uh, regular grants. So that's quite nice. So they're five years. At least this is what they were at the beginning. Five years. You get your own salary paid on that, and then usually you get money for a postdoc, and then generous consumable funding for five years. 
And um, an advantage of that is that the university doesn't pay you, which means that you are not um, really meant to be teaching. So it's always very nice to, since our colleagues um, do a lot of teaching, it's nice to be able to help them with tutorials and the occasional lecture and supervising students, but you are much less asked to do teaching at least early on. And the other thing is that since you are not paid by the university, but you are paid by the, by the fellowship, by your own grants, that means that you can move to the, another institution if you want. So you're completely free to take your fellowship and go to another place if you wanted to do that. So this is what I, what I got. Uh, I got a Sir Henry Dale Fellowship from the Wellcome Trust. Uh, this was a five-year fellowship. Now Wellcome is changing their, um, the way that they fund young uh, PIs, and now their fellowships are eight years. And with that, on top of your salary, you can ask for four members of staff. So it's a really amazing way to start your, your lab in the UK with fellowships such as these. And out of curiosity, what happens after the years of the fellowship? Like how? Yeah, that's an excellent question because this is the biggest, this is the biggest downside of the fellowship. So that's an excellent question. <laughs> so, um, so again, this has changed. So Welcome was probably the biggest funder of, of fellowships. And after the original sort of early career fellowship, you would apply for a senior fellowship. So this is going to get another five years of funding. And I think at that time you can ask for two postdocs. And I think you can ask for that uh, twice. So you would be funded by the Wellcome Trust, for example, for 15 years. So the university is very happy with you because they haven't had to pay you for all that time. Um, now, it, um, the problem with that is that if you didn't get your senior fellowship, some institution would just basically kick you out and they wouldn't support you. Uh, which isn't very nice. So a lot of universities uh, do that. I don't think it's good because you've had a like you know successful fellow working for free for you uh, for five to ten years, and then not supporting them afterwards um, isn't great. So um, things have changed now, at mm. least for the one I know, which is Welcome. When you get your eight-year fellowship now at Welcome, the university basically when you apply for it the university has to commit to give you a job after those eight years. So there is some security for you afterwards, which is great. Um, before that, some institutions such as King's College London, where I work, were already taking some steps to take care of their fellows. And so what um, we used to do at King's, and we still do for other fellowship schemes, and I went through that, is that in the fourth year of your fellowship, you go through a panel interview. You basically write a little uh, research proposal plus uh, plans for teaching at the university. Uh, you go through a panel and then following that evaluation, you get an, an academic post, uh, which is um, subject to probation, but at least you enter the academic track again. So there's a, this is a way to sort of feed back into the regular traditional academic track following your fellowship. Not all the universities do that, but Kings, um, Kings take care of their people, so they do that. That's great. <laughs> okay, so it really depends on where you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in some universities, some of the, the more ruthless ones, you don't get uh, your fellowship renewed, you're out. And uh, it's, not, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's not great. Then how did you decide to go to King's? Like, did you apply for the fellowship or did you apply like for the fellowship in a specific place? So this is an interesting story, actually, because I actually sort of ended up at King's uh, accidentally. So originally, when I wanted to start my lab, I was a little bit hesitant and I wasn't sure I could do it. And I felt it would be more comfortable or less scary if I went back to my PhD institution, to Imperial, where I would be in my old department with my old PI, with my friends, <laughs> and it felt a little bit less scary. So I applied with Imperial to two of these fellowships, one from the MRC, the Medical Research Council, 
and one from the Wellcome Trust. And I got, so these are um, a fairly long process. First, you write a pretty extensive proposal. And then uh, a few people get shortlisted for an interview, which is a very tough interview. It's a five-minute presentation followed by 20 minutes of questions from people from very different backgrounds. And then they select a few to get a fellowship. And unfortunately, despite the fact that I had that shortlisted for both interviews, both interviews were on the same day. I didn't sleep at all the night before, I, and I didn't do a very good job, and I didn't get any of these uh, fellowships with Imperial. So I was kind of uh, desperate to find something else to because I wanted to come back to London at that point. And I was looking for smaller fellowships um, uh, that some of the universities have. So for example, Imperial does one of them, which is called a junior research fellowship, where you get uh, your, your, a bit of independence, a bit of funding, and it gives you time to apply for fellowships. And I saw that, um, that King's College uh, had one of these fellowships. Uh, this was a two-year fellowship. It's called the King's Prize Fellowship that give you so two years of funding, uh, some, some salary funding, some consumables, and even a member of staff to work with you. And the only downside to it is that I had to find a sponsor. So you basically need to find somebody, like a head of department, uh, to sponsor you for the fellowship. And uh, the head of department uh, for the Department of Infectious Diseases was a professor uh, called Michael Malem. And I recognized that name because he was the person who had interviewed me for the Welcome Fellowship like two months before, who had looked pretty angry during my entire presentation, who had asked me really tough questions, and he didn't seem to like my project at all. And in fact, I didn't get that fellowship. So I was like, oh, well, okay. So, but I was pretty desperate at that point, to be honest. And and also to be fair, the department was a great fit. So it was mostly a virology department, but they worked on um, that great expertise on antiviral cytokines called interferons, without which I wanted to work on. So it, it worked in theory very well, except for the person I had to contact to be my sponsor. Um, so it took a lot of courage for me to send that email. And basically, because I thought, if this guy uh, didn't want to, you know, give me the welcome money to work at Imperial, why would he want to give me some King's money to work in his department? So, I, I, you know, I thought I had nothing to lose at worst. Uh, he was going to laugh in my face or never respond to me. I wasn't really expecting a response, to be honest. And so I was really pleasantly surprised to get a response, a very positive and encouraging response. A few hours later, I remember it was Thanksgiving Day, so um, we were celebrating already. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yes, yeah, so... Um, I ended up, you know, applying for the fellowship there uh, with Mike Malium as my sponsor. And uh, he's been my boss for six, seven years now, and he's been incredibly supportive. So this is just a lesson to sometimes uh, if something is scary, it's still worth trying. Uh, that's a great story. <laughs> oh, man, I'd like, seriously, when I sent that email, I was, I was, I was convinced uh, this was a terrible thing and that there was going to get maybe like some insults in return. <laughs> no, no it, was, it was completely worth it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, that's amazing. So you were seen in Boston. Uh, when you were applying to go back to the UK? Originally, yes, yeah. No, no, that's right. I was in Boston. That okay. was in did you have, like, also because you're French, um, did you particularly wanted to come back to Europe uh, for family reasons, for example? Yes, exactly. So I thought, you know, six years in the US mm. was enough. Um, I felt that if I started my lab in the US, I would be stuck for another long time. Because uh, I felt like if I was, you know, hosting PhD students or supervising uh, postdocs, I didn't want to start my life in the U.S. and then eventually leave. Uh, so I didn't want to make that commitment um, to stay in the U.S. So I was mostly looking to uh, to come back to Europe, yes, for family reasons, like you said. Yeah. Now, then, I would like to ask you on on like 
the actual transition to starting mm -hmm. up. For you, what was the most challenging part uh, of like starting it? Like, uh, was it like the research problem or was more like a, how you start a lab basically? <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm assuming it's going to depend on, you know, depend on how much funding you have when you start, how much you can bring from your lab in terms of, you know, um, uh, reagents and ideas and questions that you want to address. So I started with that small King's Prize Fellowship, um, which wasn't a ton of money, I thought. In, in the end, it turned out to be completely fine, but I was really afraid of spending my money at the time because, I, you know, it's the first time you actually have to worry about your budget. So I ended up being super frugal when I didn't need to. Uh, and then, so basically, the first thing I had to do when I got um, my small fellowship is to, you know, get preliminary, more preliminary data to, to write a better uh, welcome fellowship. So this is what I spent the first year doing, and I was uh, finishing uh, a paper I started in my postdoc at the time. And so then, quite quickly, when I got, and I ended up getting a welcome fellowship with the support of Kings, uh, I had a nice budget, so that wasn't a concern anymore. The, um, I don't know, I guess the biggest challenge was to you know, start recruiting students. It took me a while to get uh, students in the lab uh, to get a really good momentum to get the research going. Uh, because basically when you're a postdoc, you know, you do like a million experiments a day, everything is working great. And then when you, you know, pack up all of your stuff, put it in boxes and move across the Atlantic, like all of that momentum stops, everything like shrinks to a halt. You have to reorder like pipettes and tips and everything. And it's just a very, very slow and frustrating uh, starts and so it took us a while to get really good momentum and to get some really nice experiments going. I don't know if it's addressing your question very well because I, I didn't really see any other big challenges. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apart from the the shift in momentum is is is, is frustrating. Mm, yeah, I imagine. And I, I'm actually interested in like the the student mentorship stuff. So did you get a chance to mentor, for example, master students or rotation students during your postdoc? Um. So yes. <clears throat> Uh, not master students, but yes, rotation students. Okay. Um, and so this was at, at Harvard. Um, so postdocs were not asked to supervise PhD students. PhD students at Harvard are super experienced. Um, they are incredibly smart. They know exactly what they're doing, and they don't really need supervision. We did supervise uh, rotation students who, again, um, were so incredibly amazing that they need a lot of uh, supervision, just a little bit of guidance. And they were, you know very smart, um, very capable, sometimes overconfident students. So there were some challenges in, in supervising them for me, but <laughs> they, they didn't really need, need that much help, to be honest. And so this is in contrast with the students in, in London, who I think are going to be probably six to eight years younger than the Harvard students we had. And uh, mm. so the supervision is very different. They need a lot more guidance. Uh, some of the master students we get in London, they, they haven't even held a pipette ever in their life. So we have to teach them. So we do a, a serial dilutions with um, just Congo red <laughs> to, you know, to go to the basics. So it's a, it's, it's a very different, but at the same time, maybe a bit more rewarding because you can see people who really didn't know how to do anything go from uh, being super beginners to being fairly competent and uh, sometimes very good independent researchers in the space of a few months. So that's probably a bit more rewarding. Yeah, yeah, but it's true that uh, depending on the country, the the students that you get are, are quite yes. different. In the place you are right now, you need to approach your mentoring in more hands-on, let's say. How do you handle, like adapting to each individual student as they come. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, 
absolutely excellent question. So in, in the, the questions to think about uh, was like some uh, tips for future PI. So if you don't mind, I'm going to jump to that already. <laughs> so the most important thing I have learned um, being a, a group leader for a few years is that everybody is different and um, that they are different to you as well. And so they, not everybody needs the same the same mentoring and it's not necessarily going to, going to be the mentoring that you received as a student or as a postdoc. So it's very important to adapt to what everybody needs. So that might mean that somebody needs a weekly meeting uh, while somebody else needs a bit more freedom to do their own thing for a couple of weeks before they meet with you. Some people are going to ask you questions uh, all day long. Some people really uh, start to get frustrated if you uh, you know, get too close to what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis and they really need that freedom. So I guess the most important thing is to, you know, try and be cognizant of that and adapt to everyone's needs. Uh, otherwise, if people are unhappy, no one does good, no one does good work anyway. So it's in, in everyone's interest to, uh, to adapt to everyone. That is wonderful. Okay, so now let's focus on something like really positive. What would you say that has been the most rewarding experience of this whole process so far? Could be science, could be of being else, a, a PI. Mm -hmm. um, well, um, uh, publishing a big paper was nice, <laughs> and um, what was nice. So we, we published a, a, a big paper last year. But what was particular about that paper is that it was a, a team paper. So this was a project that was started by our first two master students in the lab. Uh, so the first two rotation students, they did the first experiments that ended up being figure one of the paper. And then uh, one of my first students ended up being first author with a postdoc being co-first author. I did a lot of experiments. Um, we had another postdoc who did a lot, a lot of work on it. So it was a big team contribution. So when it was eventually accepted and published, it was a, you know, it was a, I felt it was a lab celebration. And, um, and, and it was really rewarding to, to have that team uh, spirit. Also, as part of the paper, like I, I started by saying, we started with two master students, but then we ended up, this ended up being the project that rotation students would pick up. So we ended up having 12 master students as authors on this paper. So it was really nice to sort of share that experience with all of these people. And uh, what was great is that after the paper was uh, uh, published, we, we sort of got invited to present our work in Hawaii with the, the student and, and postdoc. So we went to Hawaii to celebrate that. So, uh, so we worked hard, but then we played hard in, in Hawaii. So that was pretty rewarding too. That's wonderful. So 12 master students. Wow. Yes, that's something we were very proud of. That, that's a lot. Yeah, 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 no, that's amazing. Not everyone recognizes the work of the master students or or, or even the rotation students. So uh, that, that's wonderful that they were all included. Yeah, they did good work. For how long you were working on that paper? It was a solid four years with a lot of people working together wow. yeah maybe even maybe even more from like the, the first experiment publication so yeah that was a long um, long team effort yeah long run yeah no that's amazing and you mentioned that you were even you were doing experiments yeah. back then are you still doing experiments now i'm not uh, this was the last experiments i did with for the revision so i did um I did the Western Blot. I'm still the reigning uh, Western Blot queen of the lab. I'm waiting for the day that uh, I get replaced as the Western Blot queen, but I <laughs> still call myself the Western queen. So this is a uh, uh, very different to most people. This Western Blot is my favorite experiment. Oh, they are my least favorite for sure. <laughs> I don't know why. Some of my happiest moments were, were, were in front of the uh, in front of the in, in the dark room or in front of the uh, image font. Um, imaging Western bots they just make me very happy. Oh, that's wonderful! That's wonderful. H have you had to deal like with 
problems uh, during your time as a PI so far? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, what is your approach? Because I, I think it's very different when there is someone else above you mm-hmm. <laughs> than when it's you, like, the face mm-hmm. of the thing. Like, how do you approach dealing with those things? Well, it's really interesting you say that because, actually, when I had some problems, uh, every time I actually went to seek advice from my head of department or any PI that had more experience than me. So even though you're the group leader, there are still people you can talk to for advice or or for mentorship or or even like it's important to sometimes if the problems become big to actually have the head of department involved and uh, maybe mediate some situations. So my approach mm. has been to not think I can do it myself if I, you know, because I'm still very young and, uh, and new to this. And, you know, I'm going to assume that somebody who's got, you know, 10 to 20 years of experience on me might be able to help me. So whenever I had um, things I wasn't sure of or maybe some conflicts between people in the lab or with me or whatever, I always want to get some advice from from more senior people than me in the department. And it's been incredibly helpful. So um, I would probably advise to do that for sure. And then obviously the, the biggest thing to do is to you know talk. So whenever we've had some issues with students or whatever, we, um, my head of department helped me and we, you know, setting up some conversations um, so, you know, to really discuss whatever problems there were so they wouldn't fester and try and fix these problems basically by communication. Those two are like, I think, the most important pieces of advice. Do you have anything else do you'd like to leave for future PIs? Important tips for future PIs? Uh, yes. And this is uh, apart from everybody's different. Another really important thing, um, I think, in probably all aspects of life, but um, maybe in our jobs is not to try to stay too comfortable. If you're comfortable, you don't learn. If you you know uh, put yourself in an uncomfortable position, this is when you are forced to basically swim and learn. So if you're scared, I think it's okay to be scared to be a PI. It's okay to be scared to uh, send a paper to a big journal, to send your grant to a big institute. Um, I think everybody gets scared, but you just have to do it anyway, <laughs> basically. And, uh, and <laughs> I think we all get scared. Just do it anyway, basically, is, my, <laughs> is the advice. Yes. So now for like random stuff. Okay. I, th- I think you do some unconventional also stuff outside of the lab, right? Mm-hmm. I did anyway. Yeah. What do you like to do in your free time or like a random thing uh, that will nobody would expect from you? <laughs> I don't know. You know what? I don't know if they wouldn't expect it from me. But so during my, um, actually most of my life, I did martial arts. So I, I did judo when I was a child and then a lot of Chinese kickboxing as a, as a PhD student. So I got a black belt. Um, Actually, the month that I defended wow. my PhD, I got a black belt in Chinese kickboxing. And then I did a lot of taekwondo uh, during um, during my postdoc. I haven't done much of that uh, since I became a mom and since COVID. But uh, this is a fantastic outlet to <laughs> for any frustrations. Like punching things is good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I think that should be almost a requisite in people's life like there should be like an, a physical outlet yes so this is so today i don't do a lot of punching actually i still have a bag on my roof um, uh, which i sometimes hit um uh, <laughs> but you know if you get stressed if you get frustrated the best thing to do is to to not dwell on it and start doing some um, dwelling on it is fine but just going in doing some exercise so today i i do go for hikes or runs in nature that brings me a lot of peace so i like being outside um, and, and going to, you know, nature is good. Nature is good, indeed. So you mentioned that uh, you are a yeah. mom. 
did you have your kids during your either postdoc or PhD? I had my first son um, when I was a postdoc. So I was four years into my postdoc. So uh, actually adopted uh, that child. And I was on maternity leave during the paper revisions. <laughs> so I, and the paper, I think, came out um, the oh. day I came back to work. <laughs> that was nice. Um, but yeah, so first, first child during uh, postdoc, and then I had twins um, like a year after I started my fellowship. So I have a nine-year-old son and four-year-old four -year -old twins. Wow. Well, and how did you balance that with finishing the paper and uh, then uh, starting your own lab? Yeah, well, I'm not going to say it's easy. What would you say that's the most important thing? Well, the most important thing you don't control. The most important thing is to have a very supportive uh, husband, wife, or partner. Uh, this is, a, I think it's impossible to do without like some, somebody supporting you uh, on your side. And I was very really lucky to have a very supportive husband. Uh, and it is super encouraging of my career. Whenever um, I have any success uh, at work, he gets super excited. It's, it's very sweet. So I think this is the most important thing. And then um, I think when you became a parent, you learn how to be organized. So when I was, uh, you know, single and, uh, and you know, carefree, uh, I used to spend really long days in the lab, but I wasn't necessarily achieving much. So, and then when I started to, you know, have to be home at a reasonable time to either, you know, see my husband or, or then see my family, I learned how to really organize my time. And it's absolutely possible to get everything done in a much shorter space of time if you get organized. Uh, so you can have very reasonable work days and not necessarily have to work much on weekends if you just spend the time every beginning of the week to plan your week really well. So you know where you need to be at uh, any time. You know that when you have you know, some time off from an experiment because you're incubating something, you can do something else. You make sure that every hour of your day is, is planned so that you don't end up, you know, staying late because um, because you forgot to do something or there's something you haven't taken into account. So it requires some effort uh, and actually some time. You have to spend the time to save some time during the week. And it's it's a discipline that I think people uh, need to go through. But in the end, it's completely worth it because then you end up saying, saving a lot of time and making your family happy um, at this, um, in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. And also probably during your planning of the week, you need to prioritize like there is stuff that can be delegated and there is stuff that absolutely needs you so oh absolutely and uh that i imagine is part of the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh, of course i mean as a postdoc usually you kind of do your project um on your own so i i was good friends as a postdoc with another postdoc who was a, a father and he worked he started work much earlier and i started and i finished a bit later so we would help each other uh, he was incredibly helpful mm -hmm. with me when i like, like needed to go or whatever so having a little bit of a like a team spirit always helps uh, you know sometimes you do you start an experiment and the last time point is just you know removing the media and freezing the cells or fixing the cells. So if you have you know if, if people helping each other, um, and it's always going to you know be positive for everyone in the lab for sure. Yeah, yeah, and that that goes back like I feel like it's it's a theme of this podcast at, at the end that it's really showing how we are not really the the cartoon of the like the scientist working alone in a basement. Mm. We really require a team around us to really move forward and, and the team spirit for me is like the most important thing it's not just that you require it is that it's like there's no point <laughs> there's no there's no celebration if mm -hmm. you're going to do it on your own <laughs> uh, it's it's much more fun to celebrate yeah. with people um once you've shared a success so uh yeah but uh, it's true that you know when 
it's important that everyone in the lab has their own project. I, I do enjoy um, teamwork a lot more than working by myself, for sure. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, so I think with that, we can finish this episode. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for accepting the invitation. It was really nice to discuss with you. Uh, you're welcome. This was a very fun time for me. Thank you very much. And that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button to get the latest updates straight to wherever it is you're listening. Don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple and follow us on Twitter at MotionPod. You can find links to things we've just discussed on our website, preprintsinmotion.com. If you'd like to tell us what you think, then send an email, shout at us on Twitter, or shout at us if you see us walking down the street. This has been a JMJ production, generously supported by our friends at ASAP Bio. Until next time, have a good week. Where do I find out about the different bioarchived licenses? This CC, BY, CDXY nonsense is driving me nuts. ASAP Bio have a resource for that. Ugh, that's your answer to everything. That's because they have everything you need to know about preprints. Sure, they probably have the basics, like info on the preprint servers, but what else is there? There's so much more. Looking to post a preprint, but not sure what different journal policies are? They have a collection to help you out with that. There are meetings around preprints and associated services. If you want to know how preprint adoption has changed over time, there's even a page on that. And COVID? They have a big section on preprints and the pandemic, plus some really cool infographics for communicating preprints. And university policies? Surely they don't have that. They collect uni policies where possible. Okay, okay, they do sound pretty impressive, but is it not a bit of an echo chamber? It can be, but ASAP Bio also engage with people who don't love preprints and have concerns. So we had an excellent discussion on this very topic a couple of months ago. Oh, is there anything ASAP Bio don't do? Honestly, no, they're so nice over there. They were so quick to jump in and support this show. It's your one-stop shop for info on preprints and open science initiatives. So head over to asapbio.org to learn more and subscribe to their newsletter for the latest in preprint news. If you want a deeper dive into the world of preprints, then look out for the next recruitment of ASAP Bio Fellows. Mm-hmm.